Lord Jesus, we come this morning, we confess you as our Lord. You are exalted far above every power, every kingdom, everything in creation. And we exalt your name above all names. We proclaim the good news, Lord, the news that you came in human form humbly as a servant, that you lived a sinless life and that you died on the cross on our behalf. And your finished work on the cross redeemed us. We are no longer our own. We've been bought with a price. And the life that we live now, we live for you, Lord. And we live it as, as sons and daughters in the family of God. We're a people who've been reconciled to you, forgiven and ransomed by the blood of Jesus. We submit our lives to your will this morning, to your good, pleasing, and perfect will. We humbly receive in gratitude anything that you choose for us, uh, whether it is in suffering or in joy, whether you choose to give or to withhold, whether in celebration or in times when we are asking, how long, Lord, will this last? In all of those times, we hold on to the certainty that everything is under your masterful and care, that you work all things for your good, for those who love you. And Lord God, we look toward the certainty of the future glory that we have in Christ, an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us in the future. And yet today, in the meantime, during the domain of, uh, of the already and not yet, each day we ask that your spirit work within us, transform us by the renewing of our minds so that we can discern the will of God. Conform us to the image of Christ each day so that we can be a pleasing aroma of Jesus to our neighborhood, to the world around us. So Lord God, this morning, we consider it pure joy, pure joy to meet in the name of Jesus. As brothers and sisters, we sing our praises to you to celebrate the message of the gospel, which is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. We also pray for our ser your servant, Bernard, as he comes and brings your word to us, may your message be proclaimed clearly. May our hearts be open to hear, to know and to understand your will. And furthermore, to do your will passionately with agape love throughout this day, this next week, and throughout our lives. May you be glorified this morning. And we pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, as we've done over the past two weeks, uh, we've been reading the entire text of the scripture that Bernard will be preaching on. We come to Daniel chapter nine today, and we're gonna invite Ben and Nancy to come and read this uh, text with us. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, 
that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We've turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, and in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you, we and our kings, our princes, and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we've sinned against you. The Lord, our God, is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants and prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we've sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us this great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, Turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant for your sake. Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We don't make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your people, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, 
Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Ben and Nancy. Thank you. May you be blessed in the hearing of the word. Now Bernard is coming up to speak. Right, well, good morning. And um, good to look out and see you all. So uh, two weeks ago, Sue and I uh, went to a um, concert for the first time in two years. We went to Bach's Mass in B minor at uh, Stanford's Bing uh, Auditorium. Now we went back there because we had been there, our previous concert had been at Bing, and that was on March 4th, 2020. And that event started with an announcement that this would be the last, that Stanford was closing all venues of more than 150 people. And uh, over the next two weeks, uh, the Bay Area rapidly shut down until by March 19th, the entire state was under a shelter-in-place order. And on March uh, 22nd, I preached to an empty auditorium. Well, how long? How long would this last? Uh, and we all, we all thought it would be just a few weeks. Um, then we would return to normal. Uh, now, there were uh, some doctors who were saying uh, this was rather more serious, and it did indeed turn out to be that case. We did not reopen for March 29th, uh, as originally announced, and instead I again preached to an empty auditorium, and again and again and again. And uh, then we moved everything home, and we put together services from our individual homes. And uh, we're still not quite out of it. So how long? When will it end? Is there, is there an end in sight? And these are questions we've been asking 
the questions that the psalmist asked in Psalm 13 that we read as a call to worship with its fourfold how long, how long in the opening two verses. And perhaps now we have more sympathy for our kids who ask on a road trip, how much longer are we there yet? Because we've all been asking that, those questions. Well, today we come to Daniel's third vision in chapter nine. Uh, it's the first year of Darius the Mede. The Babylonian Empire has ended and uh, it's been swallowed up by the rapidly expanding Persian Empire. And the year is 539 BC. And Daniel, ever the faithful Jew, has been reading the scriptures. And specifically, he's been reading the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord's faithful prophet who had not been afraid to confront his people with bad news from God. And he had uh, written in Jeremiah 25, because you have not listened to my words, I will summon my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and I will bring him against this land and its inhabitants. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland and they will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt. So that year was 605 BC, the year that Jerusalem first came under the power of Nebuchadnezzar. And that was also the year that Daniel was carried off to Babylon. So how long? Well, God's disobedient people would be under Babylonian power for 70 years. And then eight years later in 597, Jeremiah sent a letter to the Jewish exiles in Babylon. So why did he have to send this letter? Well, false prophets were claiming that the exile would be just two years, and then they would be back in Jerusalem, life would quickly return to normal. But Jeremiah told the exiles that they had to adjust to a new normal, long-term life in Babylon. And he told them to build houses and settle down, to plant gardens and eat the produce, to marry and have children and have grandchildren. They were gonna be there many generations. They wouldn't be coming home, maybe their grandchildren would, so they better have those grandchildren. And he told them to seek the welfare, the shalom of their city of exile, to seek the shalom of Babylon, for in it, shalom would be their shalom. But there was hope far off. And he continued, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. Now a famous verse, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. I will bring you back from captivity I will gather you from all the nations and places where I've banished you, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. So, now the Babylonian Empire has ended. Daniel has been in Babylon for 68 years. He's read this in Jeremiah, and the 70 years must be nearly up. The hope that was once far off is now close at hand. And there are several passages in the Old Testament that promise that if God's people in exile for their disobedience seek the Lord in humility and confession, then he would remember them and restore them. And so Daniel did exactly that. He sought the Lord in prayer, in confession, and petition. 
Now, he had been faithful to the Lord throughout his many years in Babylon. He was not in Babylon because of his individual sin. And he had been faithful in prayer, as we saw back in chapter six. He risked his life to keep on praying, risking even being thrown to the lion's den. Nevertheless, in this prayer, he identifies with the people, with his people. He prepared himself by fasting and putting on sackcloth and ashes, all symbols of repentance and sorrow. And then he prayed a great prayer of corporate confession and petitioned the Lord for mercy. And this really is one of the great prayers of the Old Testament. Uh, ranking up there with Ezra chapter nine, Nehemiah chapter nine, um, and they're all somewhat related. They all happen to be in chapter nine, um, and uh, three wonderful prayers. Now, his prayer is not original. Um, scarcely any, anything original. Instead, he draws upon a great reservoir of language in the rest of scripture. And we often look down upon prayers that are rote, uh, or, or set prayers as being rote or empty ritual. Um, but as he puts this together from scripture, um, it is deeply formed and um, great value of set prayers is that they are well formed. And we have a great reservoir of set prayers in the Book of Common Prayer, prepared in 1549 by Archbishop Thomas Cranmer for the fledgling Church of England. And he drew on another reservoir of prayers, a thousand plus years of the liturgy of the Western Church. And in turn, the prayer book has become a reservoir from which God's people have drawn for 450 years in their prayers and liturgies. And I'm gonna draw from it today. Now, there are four major aspects to Daniel's prayer. He praises God's character, he confesses Israel's sin, he laments Israel's sorry condition, and he petitions the Lord for mercy. So first, he praises God. Verse four, he starts the prayer, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love. And then in verse nine, the Lord our God is merciful and forgiving. And this understanding of God was fundamental to God's self-revelation. So on the top of Mount Sinai, after the episode of the golden calf, when Moses asked God to show him his glory, the Lord revealed himself to Moses as the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And this became for Israel a creedal statement about God repeated throughout the Old Testament. So who is Yahweh, the God of Israel, the one true God? Well, this statement about God, this self-declaration of God's is as good a statement as any about who God is. Secondly, Daniel confesses the people's sin and he includes himself, even though he has been faithful to God. It's we, not they because this is a prayer of corporate confession. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled in verse five, which he then repeats at the end of the confession in verse 15. We have sinned, we have done wrong. Sinned, done wrong, been wicked, rebelled. That's a pretty comprehensive list. But it's even worse than that. 
he piles on term after term after term to express the depth of Israel's sin. He repeats that word sin in verses eight and 11. He repeats the rebelled in verse nine. And he keeps on going, unfaithfulness in verse seven. For that expression is stronger than that. It's really that we have been disloyal with disloyalty. Israel has violated its legal obligations to God under the covenant. It is broken covenant. Then four times he says, we have not listened either to the Lord or to his faithful prophets who spoke in his name. Instead, we turned away and transgressed the Lord's commandments, his Torah. So this is as comprehensive a confession of sin as there is in all of scripture. Daniel doesn't whitewash or trivialize what the people have done. He doesn't sweep it under the carpet. And we find similar honesty in the prayer book. And in both morning prayer and evening prayer, so twice every day, the general confession begins. We have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is no health in us. Sins of omission. We've left undone those things which ought to be done. Sins of commission. We have done those things which ought not to be done. So again, a pretty comprehensive list. And then in verses seven through nine, there's a chiasm that the NIV completely obscures. And Daniel contrasts the Lord with Israel. So switching now to the ESV. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us belongs open shame. To us belongs open shame. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. So on Israel's side is open shame. Literally, shame of face. Shame that is openly visible all across one's face. Many of you are from honor shame cultures, so you understand that language. This is illustrated in Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, Luke chapter 18. They both went up to the temple to pray, but that's their only similarity. The Pharisee prayed, God, I thank you I'm not like these other people. But the tax collector hung his head. His face was so full of shame that he could not look up to heaven. He couldn't face God. But he cried out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. To us belongs open shame. To us belongs open shame. Who is the us? Well, Daniel casts the net very wide. In verse seven, the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us. And then in verse eight, our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, all our esteemed leaders. Who is us? It is absolutely everyone. And then why is God's people so shamefaced? Verse seven, because of our unfaithfulness to you, that's breaching covenant, being disloyal, being traitorous. And because we have sinned against you in verse eight. So that's the inner pair of this chiasm. God's people is as bad as can possibly be. 
there is absolutely no health at all in God's people. Now we turn to the outer pair. So what is on the Lord's side? Well, it is righteousness in verse seven and mercy and forgiveness in verse nine. And all three words there in Hebrew have the article, so I've capitalized them. Righteousness with a capital R, mercy or compassion and forgiveness with capital letters. To us, these might seem contradictory. So first is righteousness. Many think of this as a dry legal concept, an absolute abstract forensic term. But this is a deeply personal matter issue. God has acted rightly and faithfully in all that he has done. He has been true, true to himself, his character, true to his promises and his covenant. He has said something and he will do it. He will be true to both himself and everything he has said. And that is righteousness. Then secondly, his mercy or compassion and his forgiveness. He has a tender heart, the same heart that a woman has towards the offspring of her womb. And both sides of this are expressed again in that self-revelation of the Lord to Moses on Mount Sinai. He is abounding in love and faithfulness, that is in chesed, that's covenant loyalty, and in truth or reliability. On the one hand, he will be true to the covenant and he will be reliable and do what he said. But he is also the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And it is because God is characterized by righteousness that he is also characterized by compassion and forgiveness. The two meet in him. You see, the, restart, the justice that he pursues is ultimately restorative justice, not retributive justice. Why is God a compassionate and forgiving God? In verse 9b, Daniel gives the reason, but translations differ on the conjunction. Does God forgive even though we have rebelled against him, as the NIV and others, or for we have rebelled against him, as ESV, or because we have rebelled against him, as the REB? Is God a forgiving God despite our rebellion or because of our rebellion? I think he forgives because we are rebellious. And similarly, the evil of the human heart was grounds for divine judgment in the flood. God looked and he saw that the human heart was evil, totally evil, in Genesis 6. And wiped the world clean in a flood. But then after the flood, this same wickedness of humanity was grounds for God's mercy. It is because every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood that God keeps the world going. The end of Genesis 8. And then similarly, in that episode of the golden calf at Sinai, it was because Israel was a stiff-necked people that God told Moses to stand aside and he was gonna wipe them out. It was grounds for judgment, grounds for punishment. 
but Moses petitioned the Lord, because this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and sin. So wickedness and sin of humanity is both grounds for judgment and punishment, but it's also, it's why God is a forgiving and compassionate God. And he is able to reconcile those two. He forgives because we are rebellious. So this is the second aspect of Daniel's prayer, a comprehensive statement of Israel's sin, both on its own, but also contrasted with God's faithfulness and with his forgiving compassion. Referring again to the prayer book, in the prayer of humble access, uh, we pray, we do not presume to come to this your table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your manifold and great mercies. Thirdly, Daniel laments the sorry condition of people and land. The Lord has brought on them this great disaster, which is the desolation of Jerusalem, both the city and the temple. They lie in ruins. And finally, he petitions the Lord to turn away your anger and your wrath, to look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Now, four times, Daniel has confessed that we have not listened to the Lord or obeyed him. But he now petitions God to listen to his pleas. We haven't listened to you, but please listen to us. And twice he petitions the Lord to act for your sake. So what do we mean when we say, for the Lord's sake or for his name's sake? So here Daniel has a God-centered, not human-centered perspective. God needs to act for his sake, not for Israel's sake, not for our sake, because both Jerusalem and the people bear God's name. So God's honor and his character are at stake. You see, God has set out to do something. He has called out Abraham and his descendants to be a new humanity, to which purpose he has bound himself in covenant. And he will succeed in this purpose. That's what righteousness is. He set out to do something and he will do it. Now, because the other party to the company, uh, covenant is so flaky, he will forgive and restore so that he be proved faithful and succeed in his purpose. Now, this is to the great benefit of the people, of his people, but it is not primarily for his people. It is to fulfill God's purposes, his designs. And this is why it's so important to hold together God's righteousness and his compassion and forgiveness. Yes, he is compassionate and forgiving, but he does so, he is so, because he is pursuing some great plan, both for the world and for humanity. And he will succeed in that plan. And these two meet together in the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, abounding in love, that is covenant loyalty, chesed love, and in faithfulness, reliability. And then Daniel ends with an impassioned plea. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. Will God hear? 
Will he forgive? Will he act? And how long will it take? Well, while Daniel was still praying this corporate confession, the angel Gabriel came to him in a vision and said, as soon as you began to pray, a word went out which I have come to tell you. So looking again to the prayer book, uh, the collect for the 12th Sunday of Trinity, which would come sort of middle of summer, we read, Almighty and everlasting God, who is always more ready to hear than we are to pray, and who wants to give more than we desire or deserve, pour down upon us your abundant mercy, forgiving us those things in which our conscience is afraid and giving to us that which our prayer dare not presume to ask. You see, Daniel didn't have to harangue God to hear and see. He didn't have to come and try and get some formula that was right to get God to act. As soon as he prayed, God heard and acted. And he sent Gabriel to enable Daniel to understand the times. Now, Gabriel has come to give him insight and understanding. And as the last few verses of this chapter were read, uh, that might have been the last thing in your mind that you had insight and understanding of those of what it is that Gabriel actually says. Um, and I had thought of uh, splitting this message in two and uh, leaving what Gabriel says until another sermon. But I think it's important to see how this whole chapter hangs together. So we're gonna venture into what it is that Gabriel says and see if we can have any insight and understanding from it. So verse 24. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So Jeremiah had said that God's judgment of exile would last 70 years. But Gabriel seems to be saying that this is insufficient. Both people and city need much longer for restoration. They need 77s. And Gabriel specifies six purposes that will be accomplished uh, during the 77s. And they're arranged in two triplets. So the first triplet concerns transgression, sin, and wickedness. To finally put an end to them and atone will take much longer than 70 years. It will take 77s. But they will be finished and atoned for. And then the second triplet is positive, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Now Daniel's prayer to confess that righteousness belongs entirely to the Lord, and Israel has no righteousness at all. But the Lord will bring in everlasting righteousness. Secondly, to seal vision and prophecy, that is to authenticate this prophetic vision as being true. And thirdly, to anoint the most holy place to reconsecrate the inner sanctum of the Lord's sanctuary in Jerusalem that lies in ruins. So these three will take 77s to accomplish. Now it is assumed that the sevens are weeks, hence the widespread reference to the 70 weeks of Daniel chapter nine. And it's further assumed that each seven is a period of seven years. So the 70 weeks are 490 years. And Gabriel breaks down the 77s into three periods, an initial seven sevens, and then 62 sevens, and a final seven in the middle of which something happens. Now, an enormous amount has been written about these three verses. Uh, 
<laughs> it's um, one of the most uh, debated, disputed passages in the entire scriptures. Uh, and yet again, I find myself in the position of speaking to two different audiences. Uh, there are a few of you who are very familiar with this debate. You know a lot about the 70 weeks, you'd, about the arguments. And then a lot of you here who have absolutely no idea. Um, Gabriel is supposed to be giving Daniel some insight and understanding and you're looking and you are completely baffled. Um, now many take the 77s as a literal 490 years, divided into 49, 434, and seven years. But they differ widely on their timetables and there are many different interpretations, each with their timetable, each with their timeline. They disagree on when to start the clock. It starts, quote, from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. But when was that word? Is it one of Jeremiah's words? Which one? Three possible dates there. Or is it a decree by one of the Persian kings, by Cyrus, allowing the Jews to go back to rebuild the temple in 538? Or the decree allowing Ezra to go back to Jerusalem in 458? Or the decree allowing Ezra, uh, Nehemiah, to go back in uh, 444 or 445. So right there, that's a range of 160 years of when to even start the clock. And then they disagree on the speed of the clock. So one popular view requires speeding up the clock so that 360 days are counted as a year uh, instead of 365. And then they disagree on whether the clock runs continually because some interpretations stop the clock for an extended timeout. And they disagree on the two references to an anointed one. Because the seven sevens run until an anointed ruler in verse 25. So who is this anointed one? Well, NIV has capitalized this and added the article, the anointed one. Uh, so it's clearly grown up in the right Sunday school classes where uh, the, right, the right answer is always Jesus. Um, but that's not at all evident. Um, and it requires taking the seven and the 62 units together. Others say it is King Cyrus or Joshua or Zerubbabel. And those have the advantage that each of those are called anointed in the Old Testament itself. And then after the 62 sevens, an anointed one will be cut off, presumably by death. So is this the same as the anointed one of the previous verse? NIV clearly thinks so. Um, but this combination of the seven and the 62 is contrary to the Hebrew text. And so the problems continue. And those who interpret these verses literally have produced a vast number of wildly different timelines. Uh, I do want to detail one of these because it's been very influential as a core part of dispensationalism. Um, so I'll try and cover this very briefly. And I know that many of you have grown up with this view. And the clock starts with um, Nehemiah and then runs at an accelerated pace of 360 days per year. The two anointed ones are both Jesus. Jesus comes on Palm Sunday, um, entering Jerusalem as Israel's king, but on Good Friday he is cut off, he is put to death, rejected by his people. The people reject his king. And at that point the clock stops and has remained stopped ever since. And during this stoppage, God pursues plan B, the church age, which was not foreseen anywhere in the Old Testament. 
And then the church will be, at the end of the church age, the church will be raptured away from the earth and the clock starts ticking again for the final week, the final seven years, which is the great tribulation. Antichrist will come and destroy city and temple. But wait, there is no temple. That got destroyed in AD 70. So the Jerusalem temple has to be rebuilt before the final week so that it can be destroyed during the final week. And this is why so many American evangelical Christians are so interested in rebuilding the temple. And then the week ends in Armageddon, which ushers in the millennium. So I'm sure a good number of you grew up with uh, detailed charts and timelines of this interpretation, and, um, which claims to be the literal interpretation. And I know uh, for some of you, this is deeply ingrained in you. But given this wide disagreement between all these literal interpretations, um, is there an alternative way of reading the passage? a symbolic way of reading it. And I think there is. And all the clues are given in the rest of scripture, within scripture itself, if we just allow scripture to interpret scripture. And there are two important passages. So firstly, we note how Israel's scriptures end. Now in the Hebrew canon, the last book is Chronicles. And if we look at the, at, and the last few paragraphs, last 15 verses or so, give a rapid summary of the exile. Because of their repeated unfaithfulness, God gave his people over to Nebuchadnezzar, who took them into exile in Babylon, where they served him until Persia came to power. During this period, the land enjoyed its Sabbath rests for 70 years, at the end of which King Cyrus of Persia proclaimed that God had appointed him to rebuild the temple. God's people could go home and may the Lord their God be with them. Thus ends the Hebrew Bible. With a note of liberation, they had been delivered from slavery to the Babylonian king. Now the other passage is Leviticus chapters 25 and 26. Now I know you never turn to Leviticus. Can anything good possibly come out of Leviticus? <laughs> uh, well, these two chapters teach us how to count. Uh, firstly, the first seven verses of chapter 25 is about the Sabbath years. The land was to work for six years and then rest for a year. So it could be restored. And next, the next passage is about the Jubilee year. After seven of these Sabbath cycles, so after 49 years, in the 50th year, all people who were in slavery were liberated. They were restored to freedom. So God provided for both the land and the people with a periodic reset, a restoration. And then chapter 26 contains warnings of punishment for disobedience. And four times Israel is warned that if it persists in not heeding the Lord, he will punish their sins sevenfold. Now, I think this is sufficient to construct a symbolic timeline, which we have there. I drew this on Friday. It's the first time I've ever, ever actually attempted to draw this. The 70 years of exile was God's judgment on his people for their sin. That's clear. During that time, the land enjoys its Sabbath rests, suggesting that for 420 years, it had been denied rest. By the end of the exile, Israel, exile of Israel, Israel, the land was restored and ready for work again. But 70 years was not enough to restore Israel, the people. Its sin was so bad, they'd been so rebellious that God imposed sevenfold judgment, the 77s. 
but this period is also 10 jubilee cycles. Now the first period of seven sevens is one jubilee cycle, which is also the exile. And that ended in limited freedom as Cyrus allowed them to go home. They were freed from their slavery to Babylon. And the 10 jubilee cycles also complete Israel's sevenfold judgment. And so what we expect is at the end, a grand jubilee, that grand 50th year, proclamation of freedom for the people. But just before that liberation, that great liberation, the final seven is a dark time. And as I covered last week, the darkest and coldest hour of the night is just before dawn. Now this interpretation shows that God cares about both the land and the people. Both needed restoration. Now Luke's telling of the story of Jesus after he'd been baptized and filled by the Spirit and had faithfully passed the test in the wilderness. His first act was to speak in the synagogue of Nazareth. He quoted Isaiah 61, verses one and two. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The Jubilee has arrived. He has come to set the captive free. But Jesus was rejected and killed. It was the darkest hour, but it was also the finest hour as a human finally fulfilled the human side of the covenant. There was finally a faithful human Jesus did what both Adam and Israel had failed to do. So God vindicated him in resurrection. And then God spreads his arms wide and bids all people come and find forgiveness in Jesus and enter into his jubilee. In Jesus, his righteousness and his compassion and forgiveness meet together. He forgives people because we are terribly, terribly sinful. And he shows his righteousness because he is creating a people for his presence, for his namesake. And he is true to both sides of that equation. So what we see in this passage is that sin is dark. Sin is much worse than we thought. And you may, all, you may feel deep, deep shame, shame of face, that your sin is to a burden that is too heavy to bear. Daniel has piled on all these terms for the desperate condition of the human heart. But secondly, we see God's character, that he combines his righteousness with his compassion and forgiveness. They meet together in him and they meet together in Christ Jesus. And then thirdly, we see that God is so abundantly ready to hear our prayers. The least, least little failing call for mercy. God hears and immediately responds. And he responds in forgiveness and restoration. He invites us into freedom, into his jubilee.
See, God is about something very great. He has created the world as an expression of his love to be a vehicle for his glory and to be the place in which he and his people dwell together. And he has created humanity for his possession. And in his righteousness, he is committed to both those purposes, to having a world, which ultimately be the new heavens and the new earth, an earth that is completely infused with heaven, a tangible world, and to have that populated with a people for his presence, whom he makes into the likeness of, his Lord, of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we become like him. And God will do that. That's his righteousness. And God will be compassionate and forgiving because we are so terribly sinful. And those meet together in Christ. Thanks be to God. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Go in peace as God's beloved and forgiven people.